Amen. After that very beautiful prayer, I'm starting us off with a joke. <laughs> and um, there was a woman who came rushing into the library, and she said, I want to complain about a book I got here last week. And the librarian said, oh, no, what was the matter with it? And she said, well, it had way too many characters and absolutely no plot. And the librarian said, oh, you must be the one who walked off with our telephone book. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Okay, I tell that joke. Um, I don't know if you're under 40, you might not know what a telephone book is. <laughs> But um, in our lesson this week, we had so many characters, but we also had so very much plot. God put together lots of important things. And so I'm going to start out and I'm just going to get a little, give a little recap of this week's story. And um, last week, we studied that very dark period of the judges. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we saw the consequences that came from that. And as this period draws to a close, we're going to be introduced to two faithful people who did what was right in God's eyes, Ruth and Samuel. And then we will look at the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom lasted 120 years. And it was ruled by three kings, and they each ruled 40, 40, 40, 40 years each. And so if you've ever done, um, I learned this in Walk Through the Bible, David, I mean, excuse me, Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. And so um, that's what we're going to look at. And our story today will peak in 2 Samuel 7 when God makes the Davidic covenant. So um, we will look at our response to sovereign selection, sovereign rejection, and sovereign perfection. And when we talk about the attribute of God's sovereignty, it means that he is the most high. No one is higher than God. And in order to be sovereign, he has to have absolute power. And he has to have absolute knowledge and wisdom of what's going on. And that allows him to rule the world. But he also is perfectly good. And so because of those things, we can be so confident that God is making the decisions today that he's ruling, overruling over everything, and we can trust in God's rule. So um, I want to start out with sovereign selection. Ruth, the Moabite widow. It's almost like we can just see God's hand just reaching into that wash pot that was Moab, idol worshiping, child sacrificing, and he lifts out Ruth and he takes her over and he just drops her in to the wheat field 
of Boaz and into the Messianic line. So let's look at how that happened. Um, Ruth knew so little of the God of Israel, only what she had seen in Naomi, but yet she was willing to risk her entire future on the God of Israel. Naomi's God was her God. Now, I don't know if you are a mother-in-law or if you've had a mother-in-law or if you're a daughter-in-law, this was an unusual relationship. This daughter-in-law who clung to her mother-in-law and said, I'm with you to the death. But that's what we find. And Ruth seemed to realize that Naomi needed her, even though Naomi might not have wanted her. Naomi saw Ruth as a liability. She was another mouth to feed, and she didn't even know how she was going to feed herself. So, um, as these two women came back to Bethlehem, it caused quite a stir. And Naomi looked different. You know, grief, grief changes us. And we've got to validate Naomi's grief. It was deep, and, and grief has a way of grabbing all our resources and holding us in, in its grip. And there's where, that's where Naomi was. Um, when, when Naomi came back, the, she said to the women, I'm empty, I've come back empty, and there stood Ruth. You see, she didn't realize what she had in Ruth, and often... We're so busy looking for what we want or we're thinking about what we've lost, we can't see what we have. She had a lot in Ruth. When Ruth asked if she could glean for them, Naomi may not have realized the risk that Ruth was taking to do that deep in her grief. So I want to just take you into the the field for a minute. When I, when I read this, I have a scenario that plays out in my mind. Um, about 15 years ago, I was in Punjab, India, and there was a man named Pastor Bog who had a church of over 400 people. And they came under persecution and they destroyed his church and they beat this pastor up and put him in jail. Well, when he got out of jail, a man said, why don't you come and have church in my wheat field? So I got to go to church in the middle of a wheat field, and Hickman, my husband, was one of the speakers, and they had built this platform for the speakers, so I was sitting up on this platform in this wheat field, and the Indian women were bringing in the wheat harvest. So they were out in the fields in their beautiful saris, and they had these sickle things, and they were just, I mean, back. Didn't that hurt your back to just think about it? And they would cut these big stalks, and then they would bundle them up in big bundles, pile them on a wooden cart with wooden wheels that was pulled by a water buffalo. Now, they were harvesting the wheat exactly like they did it in the day of Ruth over 3,000 years ago. And so I looked out there and I thought of Ruth. The fields were huge and the grain was tall. Now, barley is a little bit shorter than wheat. 
But if a woman was out there bent over working, she wouldn't be seen. And if she needed to cry for help, she wouldn't be heard. And so that was what the risk that Ruth was taking. So now let's look at Ruth's meeting with Boaz because this is where Ruth becomes our story. When Boaz came to the field, he had noticed Ruth and he had asked about her and he found out that she was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Now, do you know what it, Ruth was not fortunate enough to be one of the harvesters. She was a gleaner. And a gleaner is someone who goes behind the harvesters and gets the leftover grain. And this is a kind of welfare system, actually, that God had put into place in Leviticus 19. He said two things. He said, don't reap the corners of your field and don't go over the harvest a second time. Leave that grain for the poor people in the land. So when Ruth showed up as a gleaner, Boaz knew that they were poverty-stricken. Now, had he been a different sort of a man, he might have thought, oh my, you know, two poor relatives that don't even have anything to eat, I'm going to make myself scarce. But he was not that sort of a man. And he noticed her. And he said to her, stay close to my young women. Don't go in another field. And don't go anywhere. Don't separate from them where, where harm might come to you. But stay there. And I have told the young men not to hurt you. He wanted to protect her. And he also told them to let plenty of grain fall to her. He wanted her to have enough to eat. Now, let me ask you something. Do you remember the day when God noticed you? Ruth said, why have you noticed me? Why have I found favor in your eyes? I'm a foreigner. Well, maybe you were saved young, but I was 29 years old when God noticed me. All my life, I'd wanted to belong to God, but I always saw that Christians were good, and I couldn't be good. I missed the gospel. Jesus saves sinners, and then he gives you what you need, power to be good. But I, I missed that. And so I always wanted God to notice me, and I always felt that he passed me by. But when I was 29, someone invited me to a Bible study, and things began to happen in my life, and I thought, could God, could God finally be noticing me? It seemed too good to be true, but he did. Now, I was like Ruth, and so were you. We were impoverished. We had absolutely nothing to give to God as far as our salvation. And I was a liability because everything about my life and my marriage and my circumstances needed to be fixed. Would God save me? And so I tried to improve myself, and I finally just desperately asked him to save me, asked him to marry me. It, do, do you see that? Ruth proposed to Boaz 
when we ask God to save us, he makes us part of the bride, and he marries us to him in faithfulness. And that's what happened in this book of Ruth. Boaz married her. Boaz redeemed Naomi's fields. They had a son, Obed, that put them in the Messianic line. Ruth was the great-grandmother of David. Now, I don't even know if she knew that. I couldn't wrap my mind around that. But um, she, she did birth the child who was David's grandfather. So, how do we respond to a story like this? First of all, gratitude. Do you, do you thank God for the day he sovereignly chose you to be saved? Do you still live in the wonder that God saved you? Why did I find favor? I mean, there was nothing in us. And how about thanking him for his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us? Naomi felt forsaken was not until Ruth came back and said, I gleaned in the field of Boaz, did she begin to hope that God had not forgotten her. We don't even have to feel forsaken because we have that promise as Christians. I will never leave you or forsake you. So how about trust? Ruth, who knew so little, came to trust in so much and risk her life. We who know so much, we can have absolute trust. And you know, um, as far as risk, because we had that in our lesson, what are your risks today? How much risk do we really take as Christians? Because we have a safety net of Romans 8, 28. Even if everything blows up in our face, God has said, I'm going to work with you, and we're going to bring good out of this. That's our God. Prayer. We need to respond in prayer. I, the first thing I thought of, pray for God to raise up men like Boaz to marry our godly single women. And for God to use us as he used Naomi. And, and it's, it's encouraging the fact that Naomi, she was not at her best. She was deep in grief. But she was still used. She still, God made himself manifest in this woman. And, and Ruth, Ruth was drawn. So, let's go on to Samuel. He was technically the last judge. He was a prophet and a priest. And Carolyn Downs taught this wonderful lesson on Hannah some years back. And she said Samuel needed to be born at a particular time in history. He needed to be born in a particular place. And he needed to be born to parents who would be willing to take this young child and give him back to God. And Hannah longed for a child. But God was working all the time to answer her prayer. And she was particularly chosen to birth, birth Samuel. And God, she allowed God to work in her heart so she could give this child, take him to Eli, the priest, to be trained in the priesthood. And Samuel, he, his life was not easy. God 
God had chosen him for hard things. He had to tell Eli, who was, who was his superior, you know, God is, is not pleased with you or your sons. And he just had to say hard things that were truth. And he had to confront Saul repeatedly when Saul was, was in disobedience and rebellion. And Saul could have just added him to the list. He wanted to kill David. He could have put Samuel right on there. He had to say hard things to people who could do him harm. But Samuel obeyed. Now, um, we read this wonderful thing. Because Samuel was in this position, it was really important that he hear God and hear God clearly. And the scripture says that God spoke to Samuel in his ear. In his ear. It, it, it was just close. It was personal. And Samuel obeyed everything that God said. Now, as Samuel became an old man, his sons did not walk in his ways. And the people asked for a king. They wanted to be like the nations. And they wanted someone to take them into battle. They didn't want God to rule over them. And even though it showed their lack of trust in God, God said, Samuel, go ahead. I'm going to give them a king. I need to set up the monarchy in Israel because I'm using it in my sovereign will. So um, let's respond to Samuel before we go to these kings. Am I willing to tell truth from God to those in my path, even to those who might be able to harm me? And in a culture that would be described as every man did what was right in his own eyes, am I willing to do what's right in God's eyes? Now, am I like Samuel or am I like the people? Do I reject God's rule over me? And this would be in any area of my life. God can put his finger right on it. Do I want a king? There are so many kings to be had today. So many things that we can just allow to rule our life. Or do I want, I just want to be my own king. Do I want to be king of my life? Well, we're going to go on and see what happened when Samuel anointed these kings. We're going to sovereign rejection. Psalm 75, 6, and 7 tells us that promotion doesn't come from the right, the left, the south. God's a judge. He exalts one, and he takes down another. Now, that verse is... It's comforted in me many times. What about if your husband loses his job or if your child loses his job or if your daughter is crushed because she didn't make cheerleader or just it, it goes from just personal things in our lives all the way to who's ruling the world. God is sovereign. He sets up one and he takes down another. And so we can, we can take comfort in that. And um, does this verse mean that God's blessing is always on the person in power? No. But it does mean that in God's sovereignty, he moves people into positions 
to fulfill his purposes, and whether it's in our individual lives or in the lives of nations. Samuel was chosen to anoint the first two kings of Israel. And so I'm looking at um, Saul and David together just because there's such a a contrast here. Um, Saul was rejected because of disobedience. David was established by God. Pride, Saul began little in his own eyes And soon, and this was rapid, he was making a monument to himself. David remained humble even after God established his house forever. Who am I? Who is my house that you would do this for me? Saul was cowardly. He should have been the one to confront Goliath, a head taller than everyone else. But David confronted Goliath. He was brave in the strength of the Lord. Saul was self-preserving. David risked his life because he was concerned for God's honor. Saul sacrificed. He made the sacrifice, but there was not a heart of love behind it. David could not sacrifice that which cost him nothing. His heart was in it. David worshipped God with a true heart. Saul tried to justify his disobedience or his half-obedience. He pled his innocence, whereas David repented quickly and completely. Now, are we kept in that place of being little in our own eyes? We always have to check pride, don't we? How quickly can it move in? Are you decreasing as God increases in your life? Um, What about when we do right things, even sacrificial things, but maybe we don't have that heart of obedience? It is easy to feel like we're pleasing God if we're doing all the right things. But God wants us to be in an intimate relationship with him. And Sally Clink pointed this out in the devotional. We can have the intimate relationship that David had. Now, it is a given that we will all sin, but it's not a given that we'll repent. I had to respond personally to this a few weeks back. I had to deal with something that I had done last May. I had to go and ask someone to forgive me and um, make some restoration. And, and the person did. I was forgiven. Now, I had, I'm, I'm just like Saul. I can really rationalize why I did what I did. I have lots of reasons, and I can protest my innocence. And, and I actually thought that I wasn't so wrong I mean, I thought the other person was wrong, and I actually thought she might come to me. Well, it took five months. And so, it, um, I don't know if some of you were in here, I think it was two or three years ago, um, I had to make my confession about lying to the Germantown policeman. You remember? <laughs> okay, and it took me 12 years. And so I was thinking about it, and I thought, okay, now, 
do I chasten myself because it took me five months this time? Or do I congratulate myself that it didn't take 12 years? You see? Well, neither. I don't do either of those things. I pray for a heart like David's. What is so beautiful about David's heart? And this is all from Psalm 51 that he wrote after his sin and confession with Bathsheba. He said, my sin is ever before me. His sin bothered him day and night. He could never get comfortable when he had sin in his life. I want that. He understood that all sin is against God. I want that. He was concerned for God's honor. And you know, when a Christian, and I, and I held myself out to this person um, that I had to confess to as a Christian, I'm not real quiet about that. And, and it, it looks bad for God when Christians don't confess their sin. I mean, it's, it's pride, you see? I mean, I know it's pride. I want to believe that I'm a better sort of person than I am. And um, I, just, I just need to get over it. And so, um, David concerned for God's honor. And then, once David had confessed his sin, he was able to own that forgiveness and restoration. He said in Psalm 51, Then I will teach transgressors the way, and sinners will be converted to God. David did not allow himself to be disqualified from God's service after his sin. It's a real forgiveness, and we must own it. Don't keep wearing your scarlet letter or going back over what you did in the past. It's in the bottom of the ocean somewhere. Okay, now let's see what happened with David's son as king. We're going to Solomon. When God made the Davidic covenant, he promised David that a son from his loins would succeed him on the throne. And David had made the promise to Bathsheba that the choice would be her son Solomon. Now, David was old and he was getting close to death and his son Adonijah exalted himself as king. And, Beth, and, and Nathan the prophet went to tell Bathsheba, do you know what's going on? And Bathsheba exercised her right to the wife's appeal to her husband. I love this. I love, you know, we need to, there are times that we think maybe something's going on that might not be what God wants. And wives are in the position of influence and they have this right to appeal. And so this is what Bathsheba did. Remember you told me that Solomon, my son Solomon would be king and David honored that promise and set, set Solomon on the throne. And things, things began in such a happy, hopeful way. But Solomon did not obey the commands in Deuteronomy 17. And, and this was so helpful to me because all the time, um, you know, that, that we're hearing about Solomon's wonderful, wonderful wealth, 
it's really not so great and grand because he's multiplying these things to himself. And he's making alliances with Egypt, which was just strictly forbidden. And so um, Solomon had a weakness for women. His heart was drawn into idolatry. But God said, I'm not going to reject you because of your father, David. Now, Solomon was accepted based on the merit of another. Does that have a familiar ring to you? So we're going to go on to sovereign perfection. And I did forget that. Sorry, think about the gifts God has given you. Okay. Um, especially with all these things that Christy put up here for, you know, that they need people to do all these things. So if God has given you a gift, it's not for you. It's for you to give back to him. And, and Solomon seemed to be multiplying these things to himself. So, um, sovereign perfection. And this is a, a beautiful way that Christy Crawford said this. Humans continually fail as, God as God's covenant partners until Jesus Christ came to fulfill what we could not, restoring us to a relationship with God. We're in relationship with God based on the merit of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. Now, the Davidic covenant had a near fulfillment, which was Solomon, and a later fulfillment, which will also be from David's family line. The later fulfillment will be the one who will reign forever. Sovereign perfection. No earthly kingdom will do that. It will be the messianic kingdom. Now, um, when God was speaking the world into creation... When he hung the stars like chandeliers, this whole, everything we've been going through, when he parted the Red Sea, when he did all that he did, he had you and I in his heart and mind because he knew that we were going to need a savior and the person had to be perfect and sinless. And so he setting everything he's doing, He's doing with us in mind, and he's fulfilling his purposes. God himself had to come as a man in Jesus Christ. We come to Christ impoverished, only to receive his per perfect righteousness, never to be rejected based on his merit. Now, over, over fall break, um, I watched Sound of Music with two of my grandchildren, it's just as good as the first 25 times I watched it. And my favorite, favorite line in the movie, it comes late in the movie, and Maria and Captain Von Trapp have come home from their honeymoon, and they find the Nazi, someone's hung a Nazi flag over their door, and he's been given a commission to report for duty in Hitler's Third Reich. Well... Maria, this, this newlywed, makes a statement. They were asking her to persuade him to accept that commission. And she said, I cannot ask him to be less than he is. 
as a young wife, she could only make that statement because she knew the more that her husband was. She knew he was uncompromising in his convictions. She knew that he did not fear men. And, and she just, um, she had seen the more of her husband. Now, it, it just reminded me of, um, do we have five, do we have more time? Okay, um, I was, I had helped a friend, I was helping a friend decorate her sun porch. And the budget was free, okay? No, no money. It had to be free. So Kay McWhorter gave me a stack of pillows. And they were blues and whites and creams. And they were florals and geometrics and stripes. And they were beautiful. But we needed a rug because of the condition of the floor. Now, how, where would you even, what kind of rug would even go with all this? And where would you find it? And there was no money. And I thought of asking God, but I didn't. Do you ever feel like you ask God for too much? Do you ever feel like, oh, here she is again, you know? And do you ever feel like that maybe the things you want to ask him are just too piddly for someone who's ruling the universe? And that's just right where I was. And so it was, um, I was driving in my car, and it was the day after garbage day, so I was not even looking for curbside <laughs> treasures. And so out of the corner of my eye, I saw something, and I thought, no. And I, and I backed up, and I got out, and it was a rug. And it was the size, five by seven. It was blue and white and cream. And it, the pattern was so simple, it went with all case pillows. And are you ready for this? It was reversible. It was two, two rugs in one. And so I just, I was loading in my car and I was weeping because God, I made him to be less than he is. You know, God won't give me a rug. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so that is the great response that I hope for today from all of us, that we will go on to know God in his perfection when, David, when, when God made the covenant with David, David, who penned all those psalms, was speechless. He just went and sat alone until he was able, he could not put it into words. And when he did speak, he said this, You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. Let's respond to know more of this sovereign perfection. Should, should I pray? Pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for all that you've done, Lord. Thank you that you noticed us when we were impoverished. Lord, thank you for just everything that you have put into place that we might be saved and we might be part of that messianic kingdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.